0: Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1. We are in a series. And we're going through the book of Ephesians through the summer. And it's going to take us even into the fall. And last week I talked about how Ephesians is sometimes referred to by scholars as the Grand Canyon of Scripture. Because of its majestic themes and how it portrays Jesus and uh today, we're just going to venture, you know, the Grand Canyon is 277 miles long. And today, I'm just going to, we're going to walk, we're going to hike through just the first mile of the Grand Canyon. We're going to barely take a peek. Uh, but I hope that the Holy Spirit illuminates some things to you. And I want to encourage you to read, be reading Ephesians for yourself throughout the summer and allow the Holy Spirit to, illuminate some of these passages because I'm going to be only talking about the things that really stuck out to me that the Holy Spirit was illuminating to myself. But the, the Holy Spirit wants to speak to you. He wants to use his word to communicate something to you as well. So be in your devotions this summer and in Ephesians. Um, what we've done, uh, I, I, I've I've been going through the Book of Ephesians, and I've been using the soap method. Is anybody familiar with the soap method? It is a devo a, a Bible study, a devotional method. Soap stands S stands for Scripture. O stands for observation, A is application, and P is prayer. And so um, start by reading scripture, and then uh, make some op- observations. Ask yourself, are there any words that I don't understand, or is there anything uh, I see in the text that I question, or or anything stand out for you as you write down your observations in your journal? And then the next part of it is Applying it to your life. God, what is it uh, that you are speaking to me? How can I apply this passage to my life today? God, where are you at work in my life uh, as I read this passage? And so, uh, and then finally end with prayer. And that is what I've been doing as we've been going through this book of Ephesians. Next week, I want you to know that we are going to have some scripture journals for sale in the lobby. They're going to be $5 and they look like, they don't look exactly like this. I got a fancy one because my grandma Mary got me some of these uh, before she passed away. And uh, this is a scripture journal that has, um, it has the text on the left side and a space for notes on the right side. So you can mark this up. And uh, write in it, bring it to church as we go through Ephesians, and you can be taking notes in here, uh, highlighting phrases and words that stand out to you. So next week, we'll have these scripture journals available to you. Obviously, you can mark up your own Bible, and I encourage you to mark up your own Bible. But if you don't want uh, to mark up your own Bible, get one of these, and I think they're extra cool, extra special. Are you in Ephesians 1? Today, we're going to be reading verses 3 through 14, which in the original Greek is one long sentence, so depending on the translation, it's broken up into many uh, sentences. But in the original Greek, this is one long, run-on sentence that Paul makes. So after Paul's opening address, Paul begins his letter with a prayer of praise and thanksgiving to God for all the blessings uh, that we've received because we're in Christ Jesus. So let's just read. Uh, we're going to read this uh, just portion by portion all the way through verse 14. I'm just going to start with verse 3. Here it goes. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Turn to somebody next to you and say every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, before we read the rest of this passage, I want to remind us of two very important things about this book, this letter of Ephesians. The first thing that I want to remind us of is unity. Paul is not, Paul is talking about us. He's not talking about you. He's talking about the church. And unity, as we read through Ephesians, we're going to see that it's a major theme within this letter. And Paul wants to communicate to us That you've been brought into a community that shares these blessings. Every spiritual blessing, that's the title of my message today. But you've been brought into a community that shares these blessings. You are not a special individual who is deserving of these blessings. Even though you did nothing to earn it, you were brought into a community that is bound together by Christ. The only reason that we share in these blessings is because we are in Christ. Christ. We like, indiv- we like to individualize scripture, don't we? We like to read it uh, the American way. When we read a passage of the Bible, it seems to be about me. God is talking about me, or he's talking about America, or he's talking about where I am today. And sometimes scripture makes us feel like that. Sometimes God speaks to us in that way. But we have to understand that Paul is writing to a community. He's writing to a church, and that this letter is being read to the church. It is a, it is a, a community passage. Everything in the West, however, is about me and us Comes second, right? We like our fences and our quiet time here in America, don't we? We enjoy privacy and we celebrate our individualism. And the anthem of today's culture is be true to yourself and ignore the haters. You just do you. Just be you. Enjoy your individualism. Just embrace yourself. Ignore the haters. But God designed us to be in relationship with each other, and our actions often affect the people around us, don't they? We are designed to be in community, in relationship with one another. Now, I know the church is messy, and we are, we look around the room. We've got a lot of imperfect people in here. Come on, if you're imperfect, raise your hand. Everybody better be raising your hand. We've got imperfect people in the church. Find me a church that has perfect people, and I'll go to it. I'm leaving but you're not going to find it. But the church, it's messy, we're imperfect, but the church was always meant to be a place where people are unconditionally loved and accepted simply because we share a love for Jesus. That is the only thing that ties us together. You know, lines of division aren't supposed to exist in the church. Racial division Economic division, how much you make, your social status, your sex, your age. These lines disappear in the church because what truly brings us together is the fact that we are in Christ. And we share heavenly blessings together in Christ because we are part of the same community, the same body. This phrase, in Christ, I spoke a little bit about it. This is the second thing I wanted to talk about before we dive into the rest of the passage. I spoke about this phrase, in Christ. Paul mentions it, I think, 162 times throughout the New Testament. And, uh, uh, and in Ephesians, the phrase, in Christ, is, is mentioned nearly twice as much as his other letters. But, he, but Paul emphasizes that we share these blessings because we're in Christ. Jesus made a way for us to receive heavenly blessings, we are chosen because we are in Christ. We have redemption because we are in Christ. We have wisdom because we receive it from Christ. We have an inheritance because we are in Christ. And we are sealed with the Holy Spirit because we are in Christ. None of it can be received outside of Christ. In today's culture, uh, we see people who want the benefits of Christianity. They, wants the, they want the blessings of Christianity without Christ. Now, we talk about love, we talk about forgiveness, and mercy, and grace, and truth. All of that sounds wonderful until you start talking about Jesus. And then suddenly, whoa, 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 don't put that, don't put that on me. That's too exclusive. Jesus is too exclusive. I, I, I'm all about those things, but I don't want Jesus. But the reality is, is we don't receive heavenly blessings unless we are in Christ He is the only way we receive the blessings from heaven. Let's continue reading Ephesians. I'm going to talk about five spiritual blessings that Paul mentions in the remaining part of this passage. We're going to read verses 4 through 6. It says this, Even as he chose us in him, there's that phrase again, in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. See, out of all humanity, God has chosen to bring the church into the most intimate of relationships. It is the most intimate of relationships. You know, Uh, the first blessing that Paul talks about is we have been chosen. That is the first blessing, that we have been chosen. We have been predestined for adoption. In the Bible, the church is referred to as the Bride of Christ. Happy Father's Day, Dad. How many of you like being referred to as the Bride? (laughs) Yeah, it's a little tricky for me too, but it's the reality. We're referred to as the Bride of Christ in the Bible. And I think if you were to ask me I think personally being chosen is one of the most significant things about marriage. Out of all the men that my wife could have chosen, and believe me, she could have had the pick of the litter. Have you seen her? She's, she's beautiful. Out of all the men my wife could have chosen, she made a covenant with me. And she chooses to every day to remain faithful to that covenant of marriage. And don't get me wrong, I had to convince her. I had to do a lot of convincing I pursued my wife and, and get this, I even had to cut off friendships with other women because I wanted Christina to know that she was the only woman that I choose to love. I I had a, I had a phone conversation with a friend who I went to school with in California and we were on the phone one day and I had just started a kind of an interest with Christina. We were texting back and forth and my friend from California calls me and we're chatting. And at the end of the conversation, I said, Hey, look, this is probably going to be the last conversation that we have like this. Because I found a girl, and I want her to know that she doesn't have any competition, that you, that she's it. And so, you know, I think you're a great friend. I wish you the best, but sayonara. And I said goodbye to that friend because uh, I didn't want my wife to feel like there was any competition. The reason she would feel that is because in California there was a little interest that had happened uh, that fizzled out, just turned into a friendship. And I wanted my wife to know that she she didn't have any competition, that I was choosing her. Marriage wouldn't be as impactful if, uh, if I was the only one left to choose, right? Marriage is powerful because of the covenantal commitment to one another in the midst of other options. And just like marriage, after a man pursues his bride, the bride must also choose to stay in the commitment. However... We need to understand something about this divine relationship we have with the Lord and it's this God chose us first. He is the pursuer. He does the searching. Right? We don't choose God. He choose he chose us first. We say yes to the invitation of God, but he is the pursuer. He is the one who ran after us. And the greatest example of this in the Bible is the story of the first man and woman. After they sin, Adam and Eve, what do they do? They hide from God. But do they get out of the bush and start looking for God to confess? No, they stay hidden. And what does God come do? He is the pursuer. He comes walking in the garden. Where are you guys? Adam, where are you? He's the pursuer. He follows. He finds Adam and Eve. He's the one who searched for them while they hid. And God himself, in the form of Jesus, he left heaven to pursue us while we were lost to sin and death. He pursued us. He came out of his throne in heaven to make a way for us to be with him. A relationship with God is impossible unless he first reached out of heaven and and gave his hand to us to lift us up. What does it mean that God predestined us for adoption? Does it mean that God has already determined who will go to heaven and who would spend eternity in hell? Do we have any say in the matter? If God is sovereign, right? And there's a lot of churches, there's a lot of uh, theologies that teach this, that, that God has already determined Who's going to heaven? You are the chosen few. You are the, the predestined, the elected few. And God knows who's going to, God has chosen who's going to heaven. And he's predestined others to go to hell. Because in Romans, it talks about how Jacob God loved and Esau he hated. It's a terrible interpretation of that scripture verse. and We'll have to get into it sometime later, but let's stay in Ephesians. <laughs> the Bible teaches that God is omnipotent, which means all-powerful. And he's also omniscient, which means all-knowing. So if God is all-powerful and all-knowing, he's sovereign over all things and can do what he wants because he's the creator and we're the creation. Can the, can the clay say to the potter, this is what I want you to do with me? No, he's the creator. He also knows everything that's going to happen, but his ultimate desire is for humanity to partner with him, to choose him. In Genesis, God created mankind before the fall. Before the fall, He gave mankind dominion over the earth. He said, be fruitful and increase in number. He said, fill the earth and subdue it. He said, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. God is giving dominion. He's giving control. He's telling humanity, I want you to take over. I want you to to, to, to partner with me in bringing organization to this chaos and bringing heaven to earth. I want you to partner with me. So the question becomes, why would an all-powerful, all-knowing God give dominion To a created people? Did he just want slaves to do his work? He just wants to check out, oh, I'll just get these guys going and they'll just be, you know, it'll just be a a self run business. They'll just do it themselves. No, if he only wanted mankind to be slaves, then why did he create humanity in his image? He created mankind in his image. Because he wanted children to love and children to empower so that we can share him with other people. God, in his wisdom, knew if I create little mini-me's roaming the earth, if I create little people that look like me and act like me and do the things that I do, they're led by my spirit, other people are going to look at my children and they're going to see me. And God chose to put his image on his created people to give them dominion over it. And to help him, to partner with him in, in creation. Now let me clarify what we believe here at our church about God's sovereignty. And the answer to the questions that I, I, I asked before. If God is all-powerful and all-knowing, does God determine who goes to heaven and hell? And do we have any input? Now there's uh, three streams of thought that I want to talk about this morning. The first two are the extreme views of thought. And the one is kind of in the middle, and this is where where we land at our church. But the first view is called determinism. And determinism would say that all events that happened are preordained. So there's no such thing as coincidence. There's, There's no such thing as fate. It's predestined to happen by God because of his omniscience. Determinism is incompatible with free will because the decisions have already been made for us. God has already chosen who will go to heaven and hell, whether or not... And, and whether or not he will do something for someone. So, the, the fate has been chosen. It's locked in, it's set in stone. But no matter how you slice it, this doctrine essentially eliminates the need for prayer and the need for evangelism. God is going to do, if God is going to do what he wants anyways, why pray and why tell others about Jesus if his chosen have already been determined? Why do I need to pray? Why do I need to tell people about Jesus? God's already set it in stone. His will is going to be done. That is what determinism teaches. But this is not the God of the Bible. And it's not the God that our church worships. We believe in the God of the Bible who says, For God so loved the world that anyone who believes in him will not perish. The invitation was extended to every human being, to every person who would put their faith in Jesus. Now, understand, God is the pursuer. He is the one who reached out first, right? God pursues us, but the invitation is extended to everyone. The second uh, stream of thought is the extreme view of, of, uh, it's on the extreme side of free will, and it believes that God is completely uninvolved with our decisions now. That he set the stage with Jesus, and then he stepped back, and now he just waits for us to choose him. And this doctrine also assumes that humans weren't totally corrupted by the fall. That our will is still good enough to steer us towards God. Think about it. How can we find God unless our will hasn't been totally corrupted by sin? But the reality is, we were totally corrupted by the fall. We were totally corrupted by the fall. So God had to step in and pursue us in some way first. And so the last stream of thought that we uh, believe at our church, we believe in God's election, which is what this passage in Ephesians is talking about. God's election, it, 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 it would say that God is sovereign and that he knows what is going to happen, but he pursues all of us by revealing himself in the elect. Let me say that again. He pursues humanity by revealing himself in the elect, in the church. God knows that humanity was completely corrupted by the fall and that we won't find God unless he himself pursues us and reveals himself to us. The reality of God's election can be seen at the very beginning of the Bible when God elects Abraham's family to bless. Right, He comes to Abraham and he says, I choose you, Abraham. I am choosing to bless your family. But he didn't bless this one family just so they could enjoy privilege and do nothing. Why did he bless this one family? This, this election came with a responsibility. He chose Abraham's family to carry a responsibility, and with this election came a lot of a lot of things that they had to abide by. I mean, circumcision is one of them. Uh, ceremonies. Law. It came with a responsibility. But this elected group of people were chosen so that the world would eventually be blessed. See what God is doing here? He says, when you are elected, when you are elected, when I choose you, I'm choosing you to give you a responsibility so that other people can see me in you. God elects people so that we can reveal himself to the rest of the world. Ephesians doesn't say... God chose you before the foundation of the world to sit on your butt, enjoy God, and wait for the rest of your life for the promise of heaven. You got your golden ticket. Congratulations. You're chosen. You made it. No, Ephesians doesn't say that. It says, God chose you before the foundations of the world to what? To be holy and blameless. To be set apart. That's what we talked about last week. God chose you So that you would be set apart, that you would walk blamelessly, that people could look at your life and say there is something different about the people of God. Before the foundation of the world, I love this phrase, this phrase before the foundation of the world, it it isn't referring to just prior to creation. In fact, this phrase is actually referring to the nature of God. Before the foundation of the world refers to the nature of God. See, what Paul is essentially saying here, he's emphasizing that God's nature is to seek others. That he is a pursuer. He is an invitational God who pursues people. It's in his nature. It's who he is. The foundation of the world is saying that it is in God's very being to choose, to to elect, to pursue people. It's It's who he is. Some people would argue, this wasn't in my notes, but I had this thought. Some people would argue that Christianity uh, is, is unattractive because of how exclusive it is. It is, it's, it's too exclusive. I mean, can Jesus be the only way? Can he be the only way to heaven? Can he be the, the only truth? Right? But... What this what this doctrine of election teaches us is that Jesus is a type of exclusivity that is actually all inclusive. That what he does is he exclu- he 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 is exclusive in the sense that God elects people so that all can see in the elect God's presence, and they would also choose him. There is a type of exclusivity exclusivity that is all inclusive. Does that make sense? Let's continue reading verse 7. And we'll go into the second blessing that Paul talks about. Uh, Verse 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Listen to this language. The riches of his grace. He lavishes his grace upon us. It's not something that we just squeak by with. We just get barely enough to forgive us. No, he lavishes his grace upon us. He is rich in grace. And we have redemption through Jesus' blood. Because we are in Christ, we've been redeemed. Forgiveness is not something that we've earned. Redemption has come to us because God has lavished his grace on us. Now, the word redemption, it means to purchase something back. Jesus purchased our souls with his very life. I think that there might be some people in this room who may believe that God could never forgive you for what you have done. Or maybe God is still holding something against you. He's, He's holding a grudge against you. You did something to tick him off, and now you are never going to be in good standing with God. Man, that marriage didn't work out. God's angry with me. That child... Didn't work out. A child walked away. God's angry with me. I said this. I got addicted to this. I did this. God is angry at me. He's holding a grudge against me. I can never get as close to God as I want to get. I better not be the only one in the room who's ever felt something like this before. <clears throat> but some of us believe this. <clears throat> we have to believe Paul when he says that God's grace is rich that there is nothing that you could possibly do that was more powerful than the blood of Jesus. Because we look at other people's lives and we go, oh, that's amazing that God healed you of that. That's amazing he set you free from that. He forgave you from that life. But he can never forgive me. My sin was too great. What you're essentially saying is my sin was greater than the blood of Jesus. It was stronger. His blood was good enough for everybody else. But when it comes to me, no. My sin was greater than his blood. That's arrogance, church. That is not true. His grace is rich. He lavishes it upon us. Have you ever experienced forgiveness in your life before? Uh, Once when I was in middle school, I uh, was helping out at a summer camp. Camp Crestview in Oregon. Woo-woo. And... And uh, I was there for like a whole month. I was part of the summer team and we were serving on the summer team and airsoft rifles had just become the rave. And uh, everybody was getting airsoft rifles. And so our team leader took us to big five and a whole team purchased airsoft rifles. We all got airsoft rifles, but we didn't purchase goggles or a helmet or anything to protect us. We just got the rifles. And so we were in our little yurt. Uh, The the guys had their own yurt on one side of the camp, the little tent. And uh, we were playing with our rifles and poking our heads out from behind the door and trying to get each other in the forehead or something. And my buddy Ezra pokes his head out from behind the door and I fire my rifle 300 and something feet per second at only 10 feet away. I hit him right in the eyeball, hit him right in the eyeball. He drops to his knees. He starts shaking And as he opens up his eyes, I see there's a little, there's a BB dent in his eyeball and it's just blood red. Everything's just blood red. And I felt so guilty. This, this, Ezra was the nicest guy on the team. The sweetest human being in the world. And I shot him in the eye. And uh, I go, I go and I confess to our team leader, I shot Ezra in the eyeball with the airsoft rifle and i had my air i had my rifle taken away from me of course and we go to he lived in salem so we drive to salem and uh we go and and meet his mom and i go to the hospital with him and i find out that uh he there was a blood uh there was there's a blood pocket forming before behind his eye and if that blood pocket were to burst he would go blind forever And hearing that, oh, my heart just sank. I was just like, I felt so guilty. I felt so wrong. I can't believe I was that stupid. I can't believe that I did that. And I came up to Ezra. I just said, Ezra, I am so, so sorry. And he looked at me with so much grace. And he said, Blake, don't worry about it, man. If you didn't shoot me, I probably would have shot you. It was bound to happen. And I... And he just said, I don't want you to beat yourself up over this. Just don't worry about it. And he just he just loved me so unconditionally. He didn't hold it against me. He was back from the hospital a couple days later. And of course, none of us played with airsoft rifles for the rest of the summer. But our relationship was fine. And we're still friends to this day. And it was in that moment in middle school that I kind of had a first taste of, whoa, this is what forgiveness feels like. I deserve punishment. I almost blinded this guy. Like his parents, they should be furious at me. By the way, he had this, this loud German mom was. Oh, Blake, don't worry. Ezra's just fine. He wants you to know how much he loves you. It's okay. She literally, she literally talked like that. But I experienced a taste of forgiveness. And I'll just never forget what that felt like to have that burden taken off of your back. Come on, some of you are walking around with burdens on your back. There's a heaviness. There's a weight. And you just feel guilty. You don't know how to confess. You don't know where to repent. You just, even if you did repent, you keep finding yourself in the same spot over and over again. I mean, how could God be that good to keep forgiving me for the same thing over and over again? And there's this weight. There's just this feeling of, of dread. Every time you, every time you pray and you're in the quiet and you kneel and you say, God, This is what I need. Your first reaction is, I don't deserve it, though. Why would God listen to my prayers? Why would he listen to me? Because I, I deserve punishment. He's angry at me. He's holding a grudge at me. There's something blocking this relationship. God's grace has leveled the playing field, church. Nobody can say that they are better than anyone else in the church because we all deserve death. We all know what that feels like. But God has lavished his grace upon us. He is rich in grace. I think Christians can easily forget how undeserving we were of God's grace. And we begin to judge others, don't we? Now that I'm on this side of the cross, I've got it all figured out. (laughs) Right? You better shape up over there. You better start coming to church. You better start reading your Bible. You better start praying. You better start living like living like Stop living like that. Stop talking like that. Stop drinking that. Stop eating that. And we judge because we forget that we were there. And God forgave us and he accepted us and he pursued us. And he lavished his grace on us. We can't forget that, church. And God wants you to know if you're here and you've got a heavy burden on your heart, that he wants to... He wants to lavish his grace upon you. He wants to pour his goodness on you. And he's not holding anything against you. You know that conviction that you feel? There's a difference between shame and conviction. Shame is of the devil. Shame is what is the thing that keeps you from praying. Shame is the thing that keeps you from God. It's the thing that whispers in your ear, you're not good enough, so you don't even bother. Don't open up your mouth. God's not going to listen to you. That's shame. And that's from the enemy. But conviction is the sweet nudge of the Holy Spirit that says, hey, I love you, but this has got to change. So I'm going to provide an exit ramp. You know what I'm talking about? That we are on the highway on sin. We are, we are in sin. We are just keep doing the same thing. And every once in a while, God throws our way an exit ramp. And we have the choice. I can tell the truth and it'll be really hard. I could could get out of here, but but I know that God's in it and his grace is going to be there. I could just keep going. I could just keep driving on this highway, keep doing what I'm doing. And we go for a couple years maybe without seeing another exit ramp. But then a couple years later, God throws us an exit ramp. Here's another opportunity for you to get out. Are you ready to take the exit? Are you ready to get off or do you want to keep driving? Maybe today is an exit ramp for some of you. And God says, I'm giving you an opportunity to get off. I want to lavish my grace on you. I want you to feel my goodness. Amen to that. Yeah, come on, I'm preaching today. (laughs) Here we go, number three. No, that wasn't about me. I'm excited about the Bible. Here we go. (laughs) Ephesians, uh, verse eight. So the, the first one is that we've been chosen, the first spiritual blessing. The second spiritual blessing is we have redemption. The third one is that we have been given wisdom. We've been given wisdom. This is what Ephesians 1 verse 8 says. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. What's his plan? To unite all things to Christ. Things in heaven and things on earth. You have been given insight into the plan of God, and his plan is to unite all things to Jesus. God's desire is to connect all of creation, things in heaven and on earth, to the majesty of Jesus. Come on, if you are wondering whether or not God cares for your kids, or God cares for your neighbor, or he cares for your family member, God's plan is to unite all things to Jesus. You know, even evil will be reconciled with Jesus. Not in the same way that we have been, but the Bible says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Even spiritual beings, they are one day going to acknowledge the authority and the lordship of Jesus Christ. And he is uniting all things to Jesus. It is the plan of God to unite all things to him. And we have been given wisdom. I think it's in Corinthians where Paul says, who can know the mind of the Lord? Who can know the mind of a man except the man himself? Nobody knows the mind of the Lord. But then he goes on to say, but you, through the Holy Spirit, have been given insight into the mind of the Lord. That the Lord is revealing his plans to the church. And he gives us wisdom through his Holy Spirit to know what he is up to. To know what his plans are. We make plans in our life without first consulting the Holy Spirit. But the Lord says, why don't you come and consult with me? Ask me what my plans are for your life. Ask me what I want to do in your church. What I want to do in your community. Again, I don't mean to individualize this passage too much. Because remember, this is a we letter. This is about us. This is about the church. We together have been given wisdom. That is the third spiritual blessing. The fourth one, I talked a little bit about this last week, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time in it this week. Number four, we have obtained an inheritance. Verse 11 and 12, it says, In him we have, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. We receive an inheritance in Jesus. Not only redemption, not only eternal life, but this next thing that we're going to get into, the the fifth blessing that Paul talks about, is that we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now this is exciting. This should give you a lot of hope. This is what he says in verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Did you notice as we read this passage, it's very Trinitarian. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they are all present. And these few verses. We are selected by the Father, we are saved by the Son's sacrifice, and we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Amen. They're all present in here. This is a very Trinitarian passage that we're reading. And my favorite word in this, in this portion of Scripture is the word guarantee. Some of your translations say that the Holy Spirit is the deposit of things to come. That word deposit or guarantee... Uh, in verse 14, is the Greek word, arabone. Somebody say, arabon, arabon. And in the modern Greek, it's the word that is still used to this day for engagement ring. So what Paul is saying is that the Holy Spirit has been given to you as an engagement ring for the promised wedding to come. Come on, we are in, we are in, all the ladies are going in the front row, they're like, oh. Engagement ring. Guys are like, okay. Yeah. But the Holy Spirit is the promise of the wedding to come. God essentially seals us with the Holy Spirit. He gives us the Holy Spirit to say, hey, you're mine, and I'm coming back for you. We are going to have a wedding feast later. Come on. The resurrection was not it, church. This is not it. There is a wedding to come. There is a feast, an eternal feast to come. Jesus is coming back for his church. And if you have the Holy Spirit, he's coming back for you. Some of us wonder, am I really saved? Does God, am I really a Christian? So if you're like me, when when I was young, every, every week I'd be like, yep, I'm raising my hand again. I want to receive Jesus. I just want to, I want to make sure this is happening, Right but what what paul is saying here in ephesians is that i've given you the holy spirit as a promise that you are mine he is the guarantee of our inheritance he's coming back for us he wants to fill us with the holy spirit because the holy spirit gives us confidence in who we are as children of god as ones who will receive the inheritance the holy spirit gives us that confirmation and so maybe if you're here and you wonder am i really saved Maybe we need to pray for the Holy Spirit to pour out fresh on you today and to give you the assurance of your salvation. I'm going to ask Mary to come up as we close in prayer. Five blessings. Five blessings. We have been chosen. We, the church, have been redeemed. We've been given wisdom and insight. We've obtained an inheritance. We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Joy and thankfulness are two very important qualities that are meant to be seen in the lives of God's people. And on difficult days, we may wonder what there is to be joyful about. What do I have to be thankful for? What do I have to be joyful about? In difficult seasons of life, it feels like that, doesn't it? And that's a very real feeling. But what's even more real are these spiritual blessings that you have in Christ we can always have joy and thankfulness for these five things that you're part of God's family that you've been redeemed you've been given wisdom you have an inheritance, you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit so as you stand with me church, stand on our feet let's give God thanks for what he does and I want to pray for a couple things I want to pray number one for an an exit ramp for some of you, you need an exit ramp today And I want to pray for a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus, just close your eyes right now. Put out your hands. Jesus, we thank you for your presence. We praise you. You are worthy. Just lift up your voices right now. Begin to speak out loud. Jesus, you're worthy of my praise. Thank you for these spiritual blessings. Thank you that I have an inheritance. Thank you that I've been chosen. Thank you that I've been redeemed. I have so much to be thankful for. God, I'm just so grateful for who you are and what you've done. God, we praise you. Let our lives be an offering of praise to you, Jesus. And Lord, God, this morning, I want to pray for those who are just driving on the wrong side of the road. They're on the highway, and they're headed in the wrong direction, and they don't know how to get off. Jesus, I pray for an exit ramp today that you would highlight to them Someone they need to talk to. They need to confess to. James says, confess your sins to one another and you will be healed. We confess to God to receive forgiveness, but we confess to others to receive healing. So Father, I pray that you would provide the courage, the grace, the love, the tenderness that we need to get off the highway to take that exit ramp. Lord, I pray for a grace to repent today. This is where all moves of God start. They start with a people. And God says, "If you humble yourself, and you turn from your wicked ways, you pray and you seek my face, and I will hear from heaven. I will heal your land." You promise forgiveness to us Jesus and you are not a God who condemns Jesus you said that you have not come into the world to condemn but to give life and so father we ask for that grace and that life for every person in here who needs to repent who needs to talk to someone Lord I pray that they would find that person they would make that phone call in Jesus name God we ask for a fresh outpouring of your Holy Spirit. Come on, if you're in the room and you want a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit, just raise your hands. Maybe you're in this place and you say, God, I need a new confirmation that I'm yours. I need a confirmation that I'm a son of God. I'm a child of God. God, I need, I need you to fill me once again with your power. Holy Spirit, pour out fresh on your people. We are asking you, Lord, pour out your spirit on us. Give us more of your presence because it's all that matters. God, we're less concerned about the gifts of the Spirit. We're looking at the giver. We thank you for the gifts, but we want the giver first and foremost. Holy Spirit, we want you. We want you to illuminate our lives, illuminate our path. Show us where we're stumbling. Lord, help us take the next step towards you. Whether it's a decision we have to make or something we have to leave behind or something that we need to pick up. Help us to move towards you. Holy Spirit, we love you. We thank you. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Come on, by show of hands, if you if you experience something today, if you experienced just the, the, the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life this morning as, 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 as you were praying and spending time, just raise your hand. Thank you, Jesus. Can we give him thanks for who he is and what he's doing? Praise you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus, we worship you. Father, we pray over the food that we're about to eat and that you would bless it to our bodies. And uh, God, I just thank you for all the dads in the room. Uh, Lord, I just praise you. Yes, thank you, Jesus. God, would you strengthen these fathers? Would you give them... um, God, I, I pray for the dads. If you're around a dad, put your hand on them right now. And just agree with me. God, I pray that these fathers would receive a new authority in you to be priests of their home, to be vision casters, to be ones who strengthen and build up others. Lord, give them a new found authority through your spirit. In Jesus' name, I thank you for these dads. In your name we pray. Amen. Love you, church. We'll see you in there in the cafe.